This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 170. and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast, your weekly dose of photography knowledge. Today, I am joined by our favorite tech nerd, Jeff Harmon, and also a new voice on the podcast, Rob Moles, who is currently in the UK, but living uh, in Italy. So welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Jim. Thanks. Welcome. Well, we have a ton to talk about, and we are going to dive right in. But first, I want to take just a second and introduce you, Rob, uh, to those of you who who aren't familiar with Rob yet. Rob teaches workshops in the in Italy and and all around the world, and uh, he teaches in, in in Africa. I mean, just some really great workshops, and does some beautiful works. He ran a portrait photography studio for 20 years, starting when I was two years old. Uh, so he has a wealth of, of, uh, of knowledge to share with us. <laughs> no, I didn't think there's any need to say that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, I was focusing gonna... on your experience and how great that is. It wasn't a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. I'm sure you were. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm looking at this video now. I'm going to dye my hair black. <laughs> All right. Well, the first question of the week comes from Al Jarina, who says this is a nerd question. And a, well, that's good because all of our questions are nerd questions. Uh, basically, what he's wondering is if he hears that there's a lot of distortion at, let's say, 20 millimeters on a full frame camera, is there that same distortion at 40 millimeters on a crop sensor camera. Um, and, well, we, we, I'll task, toss this one to you guys. Should you expect the same distortion given the same focal length, uh, the same effective focal length on a full frame or crop sensor camera? What do you guys think? It depends on where the distortion is. If the distortion's in the very edges that the crop won't see because the, the sensor is littler, then no, you won't have that. But if it's throughout, like if you put a fisheye on, yeah, you're going to have the same fisheye, fisheye distortion going through it because that's covering kind of the whole scene, the whole surface of the lens, not just the edges. Yeah, I think this de- this depends largely on if we're talking about, are you using a full frame lens and putting it on a crop sensor camera? Then I totally agree. I think that's what you were talking about, Jeff. If we're right, taking a right. full frame lens, putting it on a crop sensor camera, well, we don't get the edges of the frame now because a crop sensor camera is not going to take advantage of the whole image that that lens uh, uh, can can make. And so since it's just taking the center parts, distortion, which means the weird looking uh angles and stuff that, that happens sometimes usually toward the edges of the lens well they're just cropped off and so you're not going to notice nearly as much distortion however if what we're saying is you take a lens that's made for a crop sensor camera and then you get an equivalent focal length of a full frame lens there's nothing about a crop sensor camera that's going to just magically make distortion disappear um, and so you're really you're going to get the same thing if all else is equal but every lens is going to to make to to produce that image a little bit differently. So some lenses are going to have more distortion than others. It's it doesn't perfectly track with just the focal length. Absolutely. I mean, as soon as you start going below thirty five mil, you're going to start getting distortion on whether it's a crop sensor or a, or a full frame. So uh, you just have to be aware of that and try and keep the camera level. Uh, to try and avoid it. I mean, there are, you can correct it in Photoshop at a later date, um, but it's better to get it nice and straight as as possible in the camera and just keep that back level. Um, The less you can do um, in Photoshop, the better the quality of image you're going to get. Just keep it straight in camera and be aware of it, really. And if I read his question right, I think he went on to say something about if I get a 35 millimeter lens and put it on a crop and it comes, it becomes kind of a 50 millimeter lens. Is that comparable to the 50 millimeter lens on the full frame with regard to the distortion making a 35 millimeter on a crop, uh, a good portrait lens like the 50 is on a full frame. And I'm not sure about that. I don't, yeah. That, 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 one's I, a, would, that one's I would never shoot a portrait. Sorry, Jim. I would never shoot a portrait on a 50 millimeter lens on a, on a full frame. Um, you're just going to emphasize not as much as you would, uh, let's say, 35 mil. But if you shot a portrait, a close-up on a uh, with a 50 mil, you're going to get a big chin and a big nose. You know, That's you right. Know, you really don't want to do that. So 
portrait lens 85 and over really yeah and if as long as we're talking about that close-up that you know we're doing a headshot right i would agree a 50 millimeter lens is not a great choice for this not that it can't be done but it's not the best Mm. choice uh you know the nose is going to look big the chin is going to look big it's just going to distort the features because whatever's closer to the lens looks larger than whatever's further away and even though we're only talking about you know a a thumbnail difference between your cheek and your eye it just makes the face look strange. It just does not look right. Um, and so you really do want to be careful with that. Now, of course, you can shoot tons of portraits at 24 millimeters, heck, 10 millimeters on a crop crop sensor camera. You can shoot those wide environmental kind of portraits, but not a headshot. And, and, and the reason it's going to work that way, that it works to shoot a 24 millimeter portrait, for example, is because the person is, gonna, is going to... Um, be in a smaller portion of the frame, usually the middle of the frame, and there's not as much distortion. You'll see the exact same thing, by the way, if you shoot with your iPhone. If you shoot uh, with your iPhone horizontal, you'll, you know, in the landscape perspective, everything's going to look pretty normal. But actually, the edges of an iPhone photo are very distorted. So much so that if you try, try doing this next time you pull out your iPhone, Take a vertical shot and put the person's head in the top, you know, 15, 20% of the frame and you'll see it just looks crazy. Their body looks weirdly long. iPhone photos are just as distorted. Uh, and an iPhone, uh, it works out to about a 32 millimeter effective focal length. I think the only time it really does work, if you're shooting, let's say, a 28 or 35 mil lens and, you want, and you're taking a portrait, if, if you see some of those old um, Don McCullen pictures from the, you know, the war photographs where he's got uh, the soldier right up in the frame, really big in the frame, he shot that with a 35 mil um, and it really emphasizes the soldier. But he's, you've also got the background and you can see maybe a burning village in the background or something. Um, but the portrait is on the left third. It fills a third of the frame, the actual person. And the slight distortion really doesn't matter too much because you've got this juxtaposition between the portrait, uh, the big face on the left-hand side, and then you've got the village in the background, um, giving it context. And that's when a, a wide-angle lens looks fantastic when you're shooting portraits to include the person within the environment. Uh, those old war shots of Don McCullers were fantastic for that sort of uh, design. Very good. And so the question then remains, what is the ultimate focal length for shooting a portrait? Like if I'm just shooting a headshot and I want it to look as natural as humanly possible, like that's my goal. I just want it to look exactly like I see it uh, to to have the the person's features appear how they really are. What would you say is the ideal focal length? I put a a video together about a year and a half ago uh, called Understanding Focal Length. You can find on improvephotography.com and just search focal length. Um, And it's an animated GIF that you can see a a portrait of my wife taken at 10 millimeters, 24 millimeters, 55 millimeters, 100 millimeters, and you'll see how dramatically those features change. So if you want to take just a nice, good looking headshot, what what would you say is your go to focal length for that, you guys? 200 mil. That's a beautiful lens for a portrait. You're not too close to the people, so you can't smell them and you can get a nice out of focus <laughs> background in shooting somebody. Uh, but for me, 200 mil to eight is an absolutely belting lens for a, a headshot. It just gives you that real beautiful bokeh at the back um, and it compresses the features without making you look flat faced. It's just a gorgeous lens, I think. It's a Heavy lens to use, handheld, but um, that's my go-to lens for a for a portrait. Yeah, for a tight headshot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. I space. love the look of a of a two hundred millimeter lens uh, for a portrait. I wouldn't necessarily say, however, that it's the most accurate. I think it's probably the most pleasing. Uh, is right around that two hundred mil mark. I agree. I think it looks great for a headshot. Um, but I would, if I had to guess, I would probably say to my eye, somewhere around 135 millimeters is probably pretty true to life. It, the features look about right to me. Okay. But sometimes, most times, Jim, you don't want it true to life. You want it a little bit better than true to life. <laughs> I, I agree so, with that. Yeah. So <laughs> I agree to that. It is probably slightly, you know, a better idea, really. <laughs> it's, uh, if you've got the space, 200 is it, really. 
All right. The next question comes from Matthew Niss. Matthew is uh, basically wanting to do long exposure noise reduction manually. He's wanting to take his own black picture with no exposure at all. And then he's wanting to reduce the noise from that photo into the other photos that he's taken the whole night long for doing night photography. We, we introduced this concept in the last episode of the podcast and uh, uh, of long exposure noise reduction. And so he's just wondering if we could do that manually instead of letting the camera do it, then we wouldn't have to use the, the software that came with the, with the camera. I've never tried this. So I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. I've never tried it. My suspicion is that this wouldn't work perfectly or as well because your camera is heating up and cooling down constantly during a shoot. You know, the if you've had your camera on for 45 minutes, it's heating up quite a bit. And so the noise profile is going to be different than when you first turn it on. If it's cooler when you first start in the night, you're going to get less noise in the photos than if, if it warms up later or whatever. And so my thought is that this wouldn't work real well, but is it worth trying? I don't know. I, I'd, I'd uh, definitely be interested in testing this out. Have either of you guys tried that? I have never tried that at all before, no. <laughs> um, there, there is a, a photographer um, called Dave Morrow. I don't know if you've, um, you've heard of him. He does um, uh, tutorials on, on the web. Uh, he's a, a night star photographer, astrophotographer. Um, and he came up with a video just uh, last week, I believe, on reducing noise just in the black areas of the night sky when he's taking astro shots. Um, and it doesn't, it's not affecting the stars at all. Uh, they remain absolutely razor sharp. Uh, it, they just, he's just taking out the noise from the night sky, the black background. And that was pretty effective. Um, it's, uh, it's all done in, um, Photoshop, but, um, I've never tried it. I've never tried that technique. So, uh, I wouldn't like to comment on, a, on how it would work, but, uh, Dave Morrow is, he's he sort of, he really got that together and it looks superb actually. Very cool. Here's my problem with long exposure noise reduction. If it was truly something where you could get replicate exactly the same noise in a subsequent shot and have it like materially remove the noise. They would do it all in camera uh, before having to take another shot. They'd be able to figure it out. That's the whole problem. I can't tell signal to noise ratio. I can't tell what is actual picture and what is noise. That's what the challenge is. And if you take a subsequent shot later, how are you going to get enough of the same noise for that to actually matter? I just, I haven't seen it have an impact. Even if you use the camera's software and you take the two shots and you put them together, I haven't seen it be something like, wow, that's so clean now after you combine them in in doing this process. And I, I just don't think it's that practical of, of an approach to do it. I think there's other techniques, other things that are better, better gear, better lenses, better ISO performance on the cameras that's going to get you to a, a more pleasing astro shot than some trick like long exposure noise reduction. I'm inclined to agree with you, Jeff. I mean, if this worked perfectly, uh, that in theory, I mean, it should, but we can't get that exact same noise from the dark frame to subtract it. If we no. could, there would there would also be high high ISO noise reduction because it's really sure. the same thing. Uh, we and, we, and we it, could apply it to that and just poof, uh, high ISO is no longer a problem. But it doesn't quite work that me, way. We can't get the noise the same every time. To me, that's exactly what they're doing as they continue to improve. The camera is getting cleaner and cleaner at higher ISOs. They're figuring out how to narrow in on signal and get rid of the noise, get rid of the the noise in the electronic sensor that's causing this ugly stuff in your photos to be there they're figuring out how to to figure to find the signal uh that's way more effective than trying to capture two of the same noise and get rid of it mm. yeah that, that's that's absolutely true and another point I, I, we've gone way off off track from the, from the original question but I, i'm just <laughs> interested in this stuff um, one thing that i see pretty commonly is when you when you're looking at a camera maybe the one that you want to buy you'll look online and you'll see two 100 percent crops one with the canon 5d mark 3 and one with the canon 5d mark 4 and uh you know whatever whatever camera you're going to be looking at 
Um, I, I realize that's that's we're talking futuristic, but you know you're looking at, at these 100% crops of both, and you say, well, look at the Canon 5D Mark IV. Uh, that 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 photo looks way better in low light. And what I always want to say is, yeah, but let's zoom out on this photo too, because when you zoom way in, you see, yeah, the noise is gone. But you, I mean, always as noise increases sharpness decreases as noise increases sharpness decreases and that's an important factor to consider as you're looking at a camera that does well in low light is yes does it get rid of the noise but does it get rid of the noise and the detail at the same time and that's not exactly the same thing in theory we think that when when we're shooting a raw file we're getting exactly what comes off the sensor and that's just not how it works the camera manufacturers have too much at stake they know how important it is for their camera to rank well in the forums uh, for for uh, having <laughs> yeah. low noise. And so they're applying that noise reduction to the raw file before you ever get it because they want it to look like it has low noise. And it does. It just also doesn't have very good detail. Yeah. Killed the conversation. <laughs> All right. Paul Brady asks, what exactly is flat lighting? People say it all the time, but what exactly does it mean? Oh, Paul, thank you. This is a great question. I hear this, this as is. well all the time. People saying, oh, man, the lighting just looks really flat in the, in this photo. Um, and I look at them like lighting's not flat. It's not good lighting, but it's not flat lighting. Um, so flat lighting is exactly what it sounds like it means the light is coming as a big wall onto whatever it's shooting and we don't see the great definition of highlight and shadow rob you know this you hold workshops in tuscany where they have these beautiful rolling hills yeah. if you shoot uh, the the rolling beautiful hills of tuscany during the middle of the day and it's cloudy outside you have flat lighting you can't see you. The hills don't feel 3D and textured because the light you just see no contours at all. Exactly. It just kind of mobs the picture and you, you totally mm. miss out on that beautiful rolling hill. That's flat lighting. We don't have highlight and shadow. So sometimes I will, I'll be looking at a photo that was shot in the middle of the day, horrible, hard shadows everywhere. And I'll hear somebody say, oh, the lighting is kind of flat in that. I'm like, no, 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 no. The lighting is the opposite of flat. The lighting is crazy, <laughs> not flat. It needs to it's flatten crap. a little bit to look a little bit better. Yeah, it's top lighting. That 12 o'clock is top lighting, isn't it? So uh, yeah, flat lighting is uh, overcast skies and um, it, which can be absolutely beautiful for yep. certain subjects um but uh, if you're shooting landscapes and uh, that's why we get up at five o'clock in the morning and hang around till sort of seven eight nine ten o'clock at night to get that angled lighting which uh, enhances all the contours brings all the colors to life that's beautiful lighting that's worth getting up in the morning for although it's damned hard to do that <laughs> <laughs> you can replicate the effect and and just so that paul could go see it if you go take the contrast slider and slide it all the way to the left, you're going to make <laughs> yeah. flat lighting out of your photo. And that's what doesn't look good. Or if you take shadows and highlights and, and go on the extremes, you might not get there every time because there's it, it's doing a better job there. But but yeah, contrast slider, just slide that all the way to the left and you've made a flat light photo and you can see what it's what we're talking about. I hate it when we use terms like this, though. <laughs> yep. I had a recent experience. Well, not recent, but a little while ago, I went and took a golf lesson and the guy's telling me things like, oh, you hit that one thin. Oh, you hit that one fat. Like, what are you talking about? What is this thin <laughs> and fat when you hit a golf club? Please talk to me in terms I can understand. How I did I gain him, weight in the last 30 seconds? Dude, Come on. I don't know what you're talking about. Please change it. And, and we use we do it all the time in photography too. use all these terms that people don't understand and don't know what it means. So I, I love these questions. Yeah, I, I, I always try to be good at this uh, when I'm talking about things to to explain the term of art as we're using it, but I'm not always the best at it. Sometimes I forget. So uh, it can be tough. And now one other situation I was thinking about uh, where this also applies is with on-camera flash as compared to off-camera flash. So if I put the speed yeah. light right on my camera, uh, see here the speed light, the little flashy thingy, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, the speed light goes right on your camera. Well, 
it may create hard lighting. And by hard lighting, I mean, it's a sharp change from the highlight to the shadow, like where you can see a perfect line of where the shadow starts. That's hard lighting. It is going to create that because the light source, the speed light is tiny and tiny lights always produce hard lights. But it may also be flat lighting because the camera only sees from one angle. And if your speed light is on the camera, it's almost exactly the same angle. And so the light is coming as a big wall and flattening out anywhere that could be a shadow. Everywhere uh, is getting hit by that same wall of light coming from the same plane of focus as the camera. And so that creates flat light, even though it's hard light. They're different things. Whereas if we take that speed light off the camera and move it a few feet to the side, then we have directional light, hence not flat light, um, and it could be hard or soft. Yeah, I mean, some of the best flat light that you see is uh, beauty lighting, really, where the you've got the lights right directly over the camera, but it's a big light source. It's a very, very soft light source in, a, in either a beauty dish or a softbox. Um but that is essentially flat lighting. And you look at some of the, um, the models that you see in the magazines, the makeup models, that's very flat lighting on there, but it gives a beautiful uh, glamour effect, very, very fashion effect. That's uh, a fine that's point. When it, work, when it works really well, you know, when you want to get rid of all the wrinkles and the creases and things. I mean, I saw a picture of, um, I don't know if you, you know, Helen Mirren, the uh, actress. Nope. Um, she's a British actress. She must be nearly 70. And uh, I think she's advertising something for L'Oreal or <laughs> some, some such makeup. But they must have flattened that lighting out and <laughs> photoshopped her and photographed her through a stocking. I mean, you know, it just eliminated all the wrinkles and everything. She looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, but that's flat lighting. Oh, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah. So if you're uh, just kind of delve into that a little bit more, let's say we're taking a picture of a model in the studio. We're usually yeah. going to use a big old softbox. Let's say we're going to put this big softbox right directly uh, above the model. So uh, in front of the model, but high above her and it's shining yeah. down on her face. And then we have the, the model hold with her hands, a reflector bouncing that light up to, to the face from the bottom. Uh, this is usually yeah. called clamshell lighting. So we have light coming from the top and light coming from the bottom. It fills in all of the shadows. And because it's filling in all the shadows, it's flat. But that doesn't mean it's bad lighting. In fact, it's great lighting, as, as Rob was just explaining. So flat lighting isn't always bad. It's almost always bad when we're talking about landscapes. For right, portraits, right. often it's a very good thing. Uh, but sometimes this is a term that people kind of throw out without what do, what do they say on the princess bride? I don't think that means what you think that means. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. That was a great show. Did you, did you see that, that show? American film or something. Oh, I'm yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm across the way. I oh, yes. Rob, that's sad. They talk in British accents it. in that show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, right very good ones, I'm gonna have to mail it i'm gonna have to mail you a dvd of that one all right well we have a lot to talk about in this episode uh first i want to thank everybody that has come to improve photography plus.com to support all that we do uh we are producing uh, a new episode of, of one of the podcasts on the improved photography network every day we have this podcast and tripod and portrait session and photo taco uh we have tons of content going up on our on our youtube um page and a new article every single day going up on improvephotography.com we're holding free photography workshops we have tons of content out there for you guys for free improved photography plus is where we put all of the paid content that we've created uh, all on webs on one website that you can get for $19.95 a month. There's a 14-day free trial. Free trial. So please go out and just go check it out. Uh, check out Improved Photography Plus. If you missed the Lightroom preset steal from last year, the year before, uh, it's all on there. We have hundreds of Lightroom presets. Nick and I contributed, uh, I think we almost have 40 uh, raw files of skies. So if you take a photo and it kind of has a boring sky in your real estate or your portrait photo, you can download these raw files of a sky and pop it right in there. And Nick has a tutorial showing you how to do that. There's tons, hours and hours and hours of video content on there. So check it out at Improve 
photographyplus.com. I announced this week that we are doing a free workshop in Glacier National Park um, in Montana in September, and it is going to give priority to those who are in Improved Photography Plus to sign up for it. There are only going to be 25 seats this time. I want a smaller group uh, that I can get to know a little bit better. Uh, it's a free workshop, but it is giving um, preference to those in Improved Photography Plus, and we'll have signups available for that shortly. So check out improvephotographyplus.com. Well, Rob, you wanted to talk a little bit about photo books. Tell us about that. Well, I think that, um, you know, you asked me to pull up a segment um, about that I wish to talk about. And I've, I've just recently been um, investigating photo books. Uh, and I just, I've just got a couple that have just come through, been printed, and I've just received them in the post. And they are absolutely stunning ways to uh, to show your photographs. Uh, I mean, you know, what, why should we have a photo book? Well, I think, first of all, it is something, it's a legacy that you can actually leave for your family. Instead of leaving them a hard drive that in, you know, maybe 50 years, they won't even be able to plug the thing in uh, because right. the computers have moved on. And, you know, unless you, you know, move your uh, storage and upgrade that every every sort of 10 years or so. Um, but a photo book, you know, when you go into the attic and you pick out uh, boxes of photographs from your grandparents and things. They are absolutely lovely things to look at. Um, and the other thing that um, I find about photo books is once you've started, once you've got one, um, they actually inspire you to pick subjects and pick projects that uh, you can put into a photo book. Um, and, you know, you can sort of start thinking about, okay, well, I'm – not necessarily holidays, but photographing your local town or um, a place that you're going to, or even people. Um, there for is a, a photo project, series for a photo series. Yeah, there's a project called Fifty Strangers. I don't know if anybody's heard of this, but it's uh, it's one of those you photo you go out into the into your local town and you pick a stranger and you ask them if you can take their portrait. And then you talk to them and get their life history only in about sort of 10, 15 minutes. And you record that. And then when, you, when you're making your photo book, you just write a little bit of a, a story about that person on the other page. Um, and then by the time you've sort of finished this book, you've got uh, a recorded history of your village or town or wherever you live. And it, it's, it's trying to pick characters that are totally unique, you know, like the homeless people almost, or, um, you know, the, the local tramp, just get, get him talking and take his, take a whole series of black and white pictures, uh, and put these into a photo book. I think that would be, you know, a really interesting project and certainly get you out onto the street shooting. But there is something very special about seeing your pictures printed. I have to say it's, uh, um, you know, we, it's nice to see them on the web. It's nice to see them on um, uh, on the computer. But um, when you actually open, physically open a book and you've got your images there, I can't tell you how uh, you know, lovely it feels. It feels it's a really nice feeling. Who printed um, the book are, for you? I've been through a few, to be honest, till I actually got it right. I uh, uh, At the moment, I've just received one. Uh, I went to Utah last year. Um, in December, January, and uh, shot the arches and canyonlands. Um, and did a, a, a photo book of, of that se series of pictures that, from that area. And I used Vistaprint. Okay. Uh, now, Vistaprint is big in the UK and uh, on the continent, uh, but I don't know if it's, is it a, a US company? I don't know if it's a US company, but they're, yeah, they're here for sure. They are, yeah. they are, they, are they? Right. Okay. Now, their quality is actually superb, but you do have to be very careful of the uh, the quality of your images that you send. They print slightly darker uh, than you would see on your uh, computer. My sort of method, I don't, uh, my screen isn't calibrated to Vistaprint. So what I found is if I, if I drop my uh, screen brightness down to about 75% uh, and then process the image, then I get uh, the, a perfect print, a perfect quality image for Vistaprint to print, and it comes out exactly as I want it. 
Um, I sent, I had two books printed initially and both were not right. Uh, and it's just basically, basically they were too dark. So you do have to be very careful um, that you have to process the images slightly lighter than you think um, you're going to need when they are, it will print slightly darker. But again, once you do that, um, um, that test, and I would suggest you just rattle off a couple of 10 by eights initially, uh, just to get a feel for whichever print company you use, just get some uh, prints made and then you'll realize whether some are darker or you need to lighten them up a little bit. The, the other thing that when you're, the reason I like Vistaprint is because the, um, the templates that you get um, are totally under your control. You can actually print, uh, you can actually design the page exactly how you want it. Uh, you're not limited to, um, you know, three on one page, four on another, two on one or a full page. You can mix and match and you can design it exactly how you want it. But the one thing I would say you have to be very careful of when you're doing um, like full page spreads is that when you put the image onto the page, you really do need to make sure that you've got that left-hand side. Let's say you put in a picture on the right-hand side of the book. You've got to have that image into the gutter because, uh, you know, you can make a few mistakes and it can be a little bit short or it can be a little bit long and it comes over onto the second page. Uh, so it's just a little quirk that you need to be, you need to pay attention to when you're designing your book. If you're going to do a full page spread, um, that the image goes into the gutter, but doesn't go any further. Um, otherwise it can sort of bleed into the, to the picture on the, or the page on the other side. Um, and it's also good to to um, vary the layout so it's not one picture on each page, you know. But again, I would never put more than, say, three pictures on a page because that, that and I've seen some books with like six and seven pictures and uh, it's too confusing. It's way confusing for the for the person to look at, um, whoever, you, you know, whoever you give the book to. Um, and I reckon about sort of 50, 60 images is about right. For a, for a book, as soon as you start to go above that, you can see people when they're going through it by about, you know, after about 50 images, they're starting to get bored with it and they're flicking through a lot quicker. So it's like, um, OK, it, that was a lot of your vacation <laughs> photos. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, culling your pictures is critical. Just you've got to get rid of the cut out the crap. And if, you know, if you're um if you're in any doubt at all whether that picture is good enough to be in, that should be an indication to chuck it out, <laughs> get rid of it. You know, if it's if you're in doubt, chuck it out. Um, but it should be your best pictures, and really, you're better off having somebody else choose the pictures. So come up with say, let's say, eighty pictures, and then have your wife go through them, um, or your girlfriend, or your partner, or whoever, or a good friend, uh, and let them say. Don't like that one. Don't like that one. Uh, uh, because they, they see things differently. Uh, and, I've, and I find my wife's very critical about my photography. Um, and I, it's just superb because, you know, she'll say, well, I don't like that one because it's too orange or it's, you know, uh, you've, you've cropped the feet off or you crop the top of the head off or something. Um, and having somebody else edit your photographs is actually quite a good idea. You do the major edit and then they come down and just tweak the final photographs. Um, and for me, the, for the best impact is uh, glossy paper. Always costs extra, uh, but they really do enhance the colours. They look, they just leap off the page. It looks superb. Uh, Very cool. So that's my five. That's my five minutes, Jim. Oh, great, <laughs> great. Thank you for that. And Jeff, you wanted to talk a little bit about Lightroom pan uh, panel processing, uh, which is something that I'm interested in. I've been doing a lot of them as I do real estate photos, trying to. Uh, shoot a pano in, in a room to make it look longer. Uh, and it still takes a long time. I know Lightroom's been updating this to make uh, pano processing faster, but it's still quite a time-consuming time process. Absolutely. As a, if you're shooting RAWs especially, it, it takes a while. I usually take, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of landscapes with, uh, with pano, and uh, I just can't fit the mountains in any other way. <laughs> the, the photos look way better, use a longer lens, taking a whole bunch of shots across the scene and, uh, and stitching them. But what I've kind of discovered, because there's always been this argument that I've faced as I'm doing panel processing, do I edit each individual image to how I want it to be? 
first or do I stitch it first and then do the edits? And Lightroom has made the decision for you, I've discovered. <laughs> I didn't know it. Uh, it. I had been kind of doing the Lightroom edits first. And then I, I want them to be the same anyway. So I was copying and pasting all the settings. And it seems like it may pick them up and drop exactly the same settings down for you automatically if every shot has exactly the same settings. So you might be okay. But if you've done anything different in the shots, if you've changed each one just a little bit, Lightroom completely ignores those settings um, at, when you when you uh, merge them together into a pano. So if you're doing white balance, exposure adjustments, filters, whatever, whatever else, except for um, lens correction, lens correction, it will keep on all of the photos as it's doing it. But other than that, it kind of throws them all away uh, and then does the merge and then you'll do your edits. So Lightroom's kind of made the decision for you about how how you want to do that. I think it's probably good practice anyway, even if you're in Photoshop to do the stitch together first and then and then do the edits. Uh, but that can be hard because your photo after it's all merged together is so big that doing edits on it can take a long time. Your computer's going to slow down trying to process that photo. So it's kind of a tough thing, I, I think, to know exactly what you're going to do. If you've got a computer fast enough to handle it, uh, waiting until they're merged to do your edits is is a, is a probably a good idea, and Lightroom's going to do it for you anyway. Um, so so that's kind of what I've been discovering lately as I'm doing it. I've, I was like, well, I swear I changed that shot a little bit. I wanted to uh, add a, like a, a filter in there or do some adjustments with a, a brush and change it. And yeah, I, it's just it's got to be Lightroom's throwing them away, those adjustments to an individual shot, and you're going to have to do it after the fact. Huh. Well, that that is interesting. Mm. I didn't know that. Um, that kind of matches with my workflow anyway. I kind of like to stitch first and then every, edit everything together. But it would be nice if it did it if Lightroom did this the same way that it does when it's when you're round tripping when you're going taking a photo in Lightroom. And you're passing it to Photoshop. You say, edit, you know, right-click on the photo, edit in Photoshop, and it'll say, do you want to edit a copy with Lightroom adjustments or edit the original? Uh, and so, if you could stitch to a panorama with Lightroom adjustments, that would uh, definitely be handy. Well, I, in you know, I think I think I must be the only photographer in the world that doesn't use Lightroom. Oh, <laughs> ouch! What do you Honestly, what do you use? I camera raw. Oh, just camera in Photoshop? Photoshop? Yeah, I, camera raw and Photoshop. I and bridge, and I just love it. I hate. Well, I don't hate Lightroom. I really, really don't like don't, it. Don't don't hate her. She's family. <laughs> She's family around here. <laughs> I've got to be the only. So I can feel all the daggers coming out. You know, <laughs> what is oh, I, this guy talking about? I don't think your dislike for it is is not uh, shared. I I think our listeners. There's a lot of listeners who really don't like it either, and yeah. it's. I, I wish they. Adobe has a ton of room to improve it. I will be the first one to say that they got a lot of work they can do. And I sure hope they do. I hope that they, they work on the performance in particular because it's, it just takes too much hardware. You shouldn't have to have this much hardware to, to do what it's doing. I but, think the, on the editing side, Jeff, it's, uh, it's absolutely stunning with, with, without a doubt. It's, it's a great program, but, um, on the library side and the cataloging, it's way too complex. You know, I just, I'm not a, I understand computers to an extent, but, uh, oh my God, it's, you know, I don't know what it does with my pictures or where it puts them or how it sorts them all out. <laughs> uh, I, I much prefer bridge and I just use folders in bridge and, you know, I go out and do a shoot and it goes into a folder in bridge and I can just pull it up and within that folder is my finals folder, you know, the, the photoshopped versions that the, the, um, the end result. And I can find it's dead simple. You know, it's not, I don't need all this keywording and star rating and um, all collections. that business. Collections. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I love it. <laughs> do you? Oh, yeah. Do you guys yeah. actually keyword and star rate every single picture you take? No. Not every photo no, no, I no. take. Nope. Okay. Nope. That's, well, I mean, that because that that is a tough call isn't it you know at the end of a shoot and you you're going through the editing process um having to keyword everything is 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 a real tough call 
No, usually, usually all that I will do, I mean, it would take forever if you went one by one through each photo right. and start right. and keyworded yeah. every single photo. That'd be, wow, that'd be crazy. Uh, usually what yeah. I'll do is I'll just take the whole shoot and apply tags to the, to the entire right. shoot of, you know, this is a family yeah. photo shoot. Some of the names of the, of the family members, it's going to automatically find faces and stuff where I was, what city it was. I type those tags yeah. and applies to every one of the photos in seconds and then star rating I feel like is a time saver more than anything, because if I don't, if I can't quick go through all the photos and quick star them, then I've got to go through and edit each one of the photos because I don't know which one are the best. So if I go through a batch of photos, quickly star which one's a one, two or three star, then after I've gone through the whole shoot, I just click, you know, I want to see all the three stars and those are the ones that I'm going to edit. So to me, Mm -hmm. it's a big time saver uh, to be to be organized in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And then collections too. I, I, once I get to the, uh, well, uh, when I work with clients, they tell me which ones they are their favorites of the, the best shots I I get them. So they, they get a chance to pick the 10 or 20 I'm going to work on for them. Um, then I, I put those into a collection. And so I have the collections of all the favorites from all the clients and it's just, I find the organization skills better than even the editing power (laughs) in Lightroom. So (laughs) Don't but worry. Just hang it, around, sure. Rob. We're gonna we're gonna convert you. <laughs> okay. I bet, I bet you will as well. Actually, yeah. I just need somebody to show me. You know. But I mean, I just love Camera Raw. It's so cool. It's so simple. Yeah. Um, and uh, it does everything. Pretty much a lot. Most things that uh, Lightroom can do. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Um, for the editing. Yep. Yeah. 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 So it's great. It's great stuff. It is good stuff. Horses for call. Each each to his own. Eh. That's right. Well, in every episode, we like to leave you with a dude out of the week. And I'm going to just flat out cheat this week. I'm giving you two. Uh, the first one is LastPass. Jeff, I know you use LastPass as well. Oh, it is so nice. So yeah. um, in your browser, just in Chrome or Firefox, whatever it is you're, that you're using, um, it's going to remember passwords for you if you ask it to. And that's all fine. And uh, that's all fine. It's not nearly as secure holding your passwords that well. Um, but also you don't have those passwords then when you go to somebody else's computer, when you go onto your phone, unless you have that Chrome app on there, they're kind of locked uh, into Chrome. And so uh, LastPass is to the rescue. It is super, super secure uh, to hold your passwords this way. In fact, I I don't know if there's a more secure way than to keep your passwords in LastPass uh, because it enables you to keep a different password for every different website that you log into. So my if somebody got my Gmail password, they couldn't log into my Facebook and my bank and my everything else. So think right now, if somebody got your password, how many things could they log into? Uh, it would be bad, like absolute nightmare. So if you were to ask me my password for Facebook, I can tell you with a straight face, I have no idea what my password is. When I go to facebook.com, I log in normally the first time, and then I have LastPass change my password to, let's say, a a 20-digit random string of characters, something that's going to be extremely difficult for somebody to guess or socially engineer or anything like that, that to get into my Facebook account. And so LastPass... It creates this random string, and then I just have one password that gets me into my LastPass, and that's the keys to the kingdom. That holds all of my passwords for all the different sites. When I go to a site, it will automatically fill it in for me and can even, like when I go to Facebook.com, it says, oh, we're on Facebook. It puts in your credentials and auto-logs in and just pushes you right past the sign-in page uh, as a time-saving feature. So there's a lot to love about LastPass. There is a tiny bit of a learning curve uh, the first time you did it. I just set this up for my dad uh, because uh, they were having a hard time remembering all their passwords to different things. And I said, all right, let's set you up. It took me about an hour to explain it to them because they're not real technical. Uh, but now there's nothing to worry. They've got all their passwords all in one spot and very much uh, secured that way. Jeff, I'm, yeah. I, I'd love it if you would back me up a little bit on the technical side of this because every time I explain LastPass to somebody, they... it they get this terrified look on their face like, what? (laughs) I don't know my password and everything relies on one password. So how is it that that's safe? So it's, it's doing it. So this is super technical. A lot of people won't understand it and that's fine. It's doing client side encryption. So it, it LastPass doesn't know your password either. 
they are storing for you out in the cloud an encrypted version of a password database. And when you put in your password, when you're using LastPass, you have that that decrypts your file, your database out in the cloud so that it can finally pull out the passwords and, and fill it in on the different websites. So that's kind of the key to why this is so good and secure is the client side encryption that's going on. LastPass doesn't even actually have your password. If you call them and say, I, I forgot my master password, they're going to say, I'm sorry you did that. You get to start over. <laughs> yep. They don't know uh, your you, password. We, can't, we cannot help you. Um, you. There's some other features where you can like print off a, um, a code. It's this nasty, long, yucky thing and put it like a safe deposit box. Uh, they have a if you die feature so that, so that you can give uh, people you trust access to it should you not log in for a very long time. Or There's lots of cool features that it's got to it. You can um, you can secure it so that every time you log in, you get an SMS message before and, and have to put in the code before you can actually get in. Depends on on how secure you want to make it. But yeah, th this thing has been vetted by some independent people, not just LastPass. LastPass has said, come on in, take a look at our our product and, and how it's organized, what it's doing. And so it's, it's got the seal of approval from a bunch of uh, security experts in the industry. And uh, it's it's fabulous. It is the way to go. It is awesome. And you say you say product, which makes it seem expensive. It's free. It's free to use LastPass. If you want it to go to your phone and everything else, then a premium costs, what, $12 a year? I mean, it's I think it's 13 bucks a oh, yeah. year. Yeah. It's, it's very, very inexpensive. Um, so would it work on all your computers if you've got a laptop and a PC? Yep, yep. install it everywhere you want. Laptop, yep. tablet, right. phone, everywhere. It's really, really and, and a neat thing. If you went to like a friend's house, you wouldn't even have to install it. You could just go to lastpass.com, log in. And if you needed to log into another site, you find the password that you need to um, and copy and paste it in. So it's, yeah, it's very accessible. If I go to somebody so else's to computer, I just pull it up on my phone. I, I can use my thumbprint yeah. on the iPhone to log in to LastPass right. and boom, I got all my passwords right there. So if somebody steals mm -hmm. your laptop, anything, you're always, uh, there's always, you're always safe. It, like it's really cool it we've talked a lot about the 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 technical stuff but it really is not super hard to use uh, most people right. that have a reasonable understanding of a computer are going to be fine using LastPass. it's not a tricky product to learn how to use if you, if you can install a plugin in your browser you're good you're good all right and my <laughs> second one because i said i was me. cheating <laughs> is um i love uh i love printing my photos it's but it's usually pretty expensive and so often I just go to the canvas gallery wraps uh, because they are a lot less money to print a can canvas gallery wrap than to make a nice, beautiful framed print. If you've ever gone to a custom frame shop and seen what it costs to make a big, beautiful print, I mean, be prepared for sticker shock. We're talking 600 bucks for a big, beautiful frame. Uh, it's extremely expensive. And so I've always been looking for a good way to get a good looking, professional looking frame uh, without the $600 price tag. And I think I found it, uh, or my dad found it, actually. I printed a big photo for him uh, for his mantle for my parents' house, and uh, they took it to Hobby Lobby. Uh, I don't know if you have that in in, the, in Europe, but in the United States, it's a craft store. They're, they're everywhere. And they have several frames that are really beautiful uh, in the $150 to $200 price range. However, uh, as I learned, I went there and I was about to buy it. I thought, ah, 150 bucks, but that's ah, a lot cheaper than a custom custom frame. And so I went to buy it and the lady was super nice. She said, you know, these go on sale every other week, right? <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't know that. And so there's a 50% off coupon on Hobby Lobby for their frames. One week it's on sale, the next week it's not on sale. So you just have to go in and kind of see if it's on sale. Um, but it's a 50% off on the frame. And then on the glass, you can go to their website uh, and just grab their 40% coupon that's always there and you just show it on your phone to the to the clerk to check out and then you get 40% off on the glass and 50% off on the frame. I made off with a big, beautiful 30 inch by 40 inch print. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know what that is in meters. It's really big though uh, for 120 <laughs> bucks uh, and, and it looks, um, to me, it looks really cool and so I'm going to post a video on YouTube showing the the pictures that i've done there and kind of how, how that works so if you are kind of tired of canvas gallery wraps and you want to do something 
a little bit more traditional, classic looking, then check that out, Hobby Lobby for frames. All right, I've cheated. What do you guys have for your doodads, Rob? Uh, right, well, I've got uh, the right angle finder, um, which is uh, just a little gadget that you pop over the eyepiece and it allows you to look down the camera uh, and through the lens so that it's, you know, if you don't have a, an articulated um, back, uh, which I think the 7D has, but I use the 5D and that doesn't, um, this right angle finder just allows you to get the camera right down on the floor. Um, and it's, it opens up a whole new world of photography for me. Uh, because sometimes, you know, when, you, when you're out doing a landscape, the last thing you want to do is be lying on your stomach trying to get this good, beautiful foreground interest. Um, and, and everything's wet, you know, because you've, you've got up at dawn. Um, but if you can just use the, put the right angle finder on, drop the camera down and then just kneel down on a plastic bag, um, you've just got this great perspective. Um, you've got to be careful. Um, if you're buying one, the best ones to buy are proprietary brands by Canon, by Nikon. Um, if, if that's your camera, I don't know if Fuji do it, but I think your, maybe your camera gym has got an articulated back. Has it? The X2 one does yeah. the X pro two does not, which drives me crazy, but it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's your answer is get a right angle finder. Very cool. Uh, and they, ve- they vary from about 40 pounds, uh, which is what, uh, 56 euro, 56 dollars to about 180. If you buy Canon, uh, don't buy cheap. You buy cheap, you buy twice. Just go for go for the Canon, <laughs> go for the Canon or Nikon. And one nice right thing, angle. if you're buying one of these, is uh, get one that has magnification built in. Uh, some of these will yeah. allow you to magnify the viewfinder. This is especially true if you have a crop sensor camera. The one thing that was shocking to me as I went from uh, you know a full frame Nikon, if I am on a workshop and I grab somebody's uh, somebody's crop sensor camera, Nikon, Canon, whatever. Uh, the, the viewfinder image just looks so puny. It's like, how can you see anything in this? And it's hard to judge sharpness. Uh, and now I'm shooting on an EVF on Fuji. And so it's even bigger sometimes than, than the full frame images. And it's really nice. So if you can get one that has magnification, uh, I really like that. Yeah. Do you know, now that you shoot, you're shooting Fuji, Jim, do you, do you not miss the Nikon, the feel of a big chunky Nikon camera. <laughs> you know, you, you, I mean, do not miss looking cool. <laughs> I do miss the days when I used to look cool, uh, but I definitely don't miss don't miss the weight. There are sometimes yeah. that I, I I love the Nikon just because I used it for so many years that it became you know a, a friend. Uh, but uh, in terms of what it does for me personally, I just like the way the Fuji works better. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. All right, Jeff, what do you have? All right, so mine is a desk lamp, <laughs> which is going to sound <laughs> funny. <laughs> but this one is is really cool. In fact, I'm uh, I'm using it now to light me as we're on video. So, um, But it, it's the Teotronics, T-A-O-Tronics, all one word, LED desk lamp. And the, the lamp portion is um, very articulating. You can move it around so that it's, it's pointing down. You can move it so it's pointing outward, upward. It, it just kind of freely, freely rotates. And uh, it has power settings, like you can control how, how much light is going to come out of it. it, has color temperature control. Um, it has USB charging built into it too. But I, I just, I'm liking it as a constant power source for really not a lot of money. It's, uh, it's really been really cool for a constant light source. Wow. Well, very cool. Well, that does it for, the, for us this week at the Improved Photography Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check out Improve Photography Plus. Again, there's a two-week trial, so everybody should really at least go take a look at it. It explains the dark circles under my eyes because I haven't been sleeping for the last week putting uh, everything I have into it. So check it out, Improve Photography Plus. At least go get the the two-week free trial. We'd appreciate it if you stick around and support us. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you in another seven days.